Welcome back to the Real Pilot Answers Your Questions Series 2 here on the Phobic Flyer Channel with Peter Cox. And Andy Clark. And myself as well, Andy Clark, yes. I started learning to fly in 2013 and it took me seven and a half years to get my PPR licence due to a debilitating fear of flying. I created this channel to show some of my training and what's next for my flying hobby and to prove that it is possible to overcome a phobia. Welcome to the Phobic Flyer YouTube channel. So, Peter, first question today. Okay. Are you ready for this? I am. Have you ever been scared whilst flying? Yes. <laughs> and not just when I was flying with you, I promise. Go on then. Um, That's interesting. I'm going to throw it back to you first. Oh, okay. So you've already said on this channel that you were scared on your flight to Corfu. I was, yes. When else have you been scared? Were you the pilot or were you a passenger? I was the pilot. I have been scared a number of times when I was the pilot. You, have been, you may have been sat next to me a few of those times, but um, I think... I've, I think I've, I've just been scared flying in general, to be honest. I've just been really, really nervous. Um, I can remember I can remember flying with Jonathan um, on my 10th hour and just saying, this isn't for me. This is not for me. I, I can't. I just can't cope with this. It's not for me. And him saying, just bear with me a sec. We went through the clouds. And I don't know whether it was because it looked like we were flying eight foot off the ground. Cause we were flying, and I was OK then after that. But even then, when I was flying with you... I used to become just, I had this, 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 I can't even explain it. It's irrational. I know it's irrational now, but a fear of, of crashing, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when you sent me on my first solo, I can remember uh, literally as I was in the climb out, I had a thought, what happens if I can't land this? And I actually said, it's or bust now, Clarky get yourself get a grip get a grip and i shouted at myself i wish i had a camera in there because it would have been quite interesting but no i've been frightened loads of times but what about you okay yeah i have been frightened like you? you yeah like you when i learned to fly low hours inexperienced and getting yourself into a situation where you think i really shouldn't be here <laughs> um we've all been there looking yeah. back at it we all learn from it um it was predominantly weather related more than the fear of the aircraft or being in the aircraft it was being in the aircraft in bad weather. Yeah. So, in, in, in a, a, a GA aircraft? Mostly in GA aircraft. Yeah. Um, so the worst experience I ever had was, it's always the one where you get rushed into the air. And I was a commercial pilot, but I didn't have a commercial job. So I was rated, but wasn't working for anyone at the time. And I got a phone call from the flying club. Would you be willing to ferry an aircraft from one location to another so of course free flying so yeah. jumped at the chance and limited time to do any prep whatsoever got in the aircraft flew to where we were going swapped things around flew back and night fell bad weather sort of set in and i got quite nervous and then it was a case of all the things that i used to tell you that you had to do yeah were then put into practice okay. and at one point i was flying just north of bath around the bristol area I thought I was in one location. Bristol Radar told me that I was about to enter the Lynham zone. So I wasn't where I thought I was going to be. So that induced stress and panic. No moving maps then? Of course not. No. no. All done for just good old-fashioned map that hadn't been prepared for night flying. So slap wrist, all this. and Stuff you used to shout at yeah, Exactly, for. exactly. <laughs> See? <laughs> and it was a case of I was going to count to ten in my head. And if I couldn't establish that I was over the M4 where I was expecting to be, by 10, I was going to tell Bristol that I was lost, I needed help. Bristol was an airport I knew well. Filton was operational at the time as well. Oh, uh, was it? So I'd have got vectors to Filton and landed in Filton. 
And as it was, I got to nine and established that I was over the M4 in the bad weather. Right. And okay. so I then knew where I was to pick up the M5 and work my way back home. Okay. So, yes, that was probably the most nerve-wracking experience in GA by myself in a situation I didn't want to be in. Ah. In an airliner, I wouldn't say I get scared, but I would say it's safe that all pilots have days where they're apprehensive. Um, it's more to do with what the day will throw at you. As a pilot, I really want a boring day out. A boring day is a safe, straightforward day yeah, I remember you saying with that no worries whatsoever. Yeah. You start including bad weather, which we can prepare and plan for. And airliners are designed to be in bad weather, so it's a lot safer than a G aircraft. But certain airports might make me apprehensive. It could be a challenging approach over high ground at night with limited nav aids, limited lighting on the ground. Madeira? Madeira not so, because Madeira is very limiting oh, by okay. default. But I'm thinking maybe somewhere like Bodrum in Turkey, oh, okay. where you've got mountains at one end of the runway and sea at the other. And the arrival is quite steep because you've got to clear the high ground. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of energy management that goes into that. And I've never, ever done it in daylight. It's always night because of the way the rostering works for that flight. So somewhere like that would certainly make me slightly more apprehensive, especially if there's thunderstorms in the vicinity. So more to work with. Massive complex airports. Barcelona. London Heathrow, which I don't have in my logbook yet, but I can imagine it's pretty stressful yeah. if for the first time going in there, wanting to do everything right. Have you flown into Heathrow before? No, I don't have Heathrow in my logbook. Yeah. But um, certainly first time I operated at a Gatwick. I was very, very aware of everything that was going on and, and you could feel the heart rate had increased a little. Really? So, yes, it's things like that. It's good that, to hear that. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> they don't make me nervous. It's just no. apprehensive. So I think most commercial pilots will say they've had moments where they've been scared, but it will probably be earlier in their career when they weren't as experienced and weren't flying such capable aircraft. Okay. Interesting. I do remember once when you came in, when I was uh, flying with Aeros and flying with you, and you said that you were fairly... I don't know if this is the same flight. I mean, probably wasn't. But you told me that you were flying back up um, from Cornwall to, to Gloucester and there were caravans on the M5 going faster than you were. Yes. Yeah, that wasn't that flight. No. Um, no, it was, that was a, a flight where flew down to Newquay okay. on an instrument training flight and the winds were so, so strong. And it took us an age to get to Newquay. And I was looking down and looking at caravans, thinking they are going to get to Cornwall before I do. Um, but coming back yeah. was literally travelling supersonic as far as I was concerned. It, it, we whistled back from... How fast would you have been going? Uh, I can't remember the exact, no. exact speed. I know the GPS was certainly reading well into three digits without any problem at all. Yeah. And in Aurora, normally flying around at 95 knots. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we were doing about 180. Wow. So, yeah, at sort of 6,000 feet. twenty miles an hour. We were really shifting. Wow. Okay, next question. Interesting one. I was on a flight recently with only a few passengers on board, yet the plane still seemed to take the entire runway to take off and didn't accelerate very quickly. Was there a problem? As I was worried, it just didn't feel right. Okay. In several of our other videos, we've said that we fly aircraft in a way to look after them yeah. and to maximise the engine life, yeah. e.g. being the engine on the wing and between maintenance cycles this is a prime example of when we do that okay. so as the person said there weren't many people on board so the aircraft would have had ample power available in excess of what it needed yeah so the crew have derated the engine for the takeoff uh, okay so back to 
doing the performance calculations, we can specify how heavy the aircraft is and how long the runway is and the current weather conditions that we're expecting for the takeoff. And from that, we can calculate to use as much runway as possible so we don't rev the engines as high. Okay. So instead of taking off at 100% thrust every single time, which would make my boss very mad as the engines would go into maintenance very regularly, we derate it. Different airlines, sorry, different airliners have different ways of derating and have different names, but they work on roughly the same principle. Um, So in the 737 that I fly, we have two methods of derating. We have a fixed derate and an assumed temperature derate. So the fixed derate is we lie to the aircraft and say the engines aren't as powerful as they really are. Basically, we're cheapskates and we bought the ones with smaller engines. And so the plane assumes it's going to accelerate slower because it's got lower spec engines. And then we say that it's a lot hotter than it really is. And so the outside air temperature might be very sort of standard 12 degrees. And we might say it's 50 degrees outside. And because of that, the computer that controls the engine will calculate what it expects thrust-wise, given that high temperature. And when it gets to that thrust, it will stop accelerating the engine any further, which keeps the temperatures in the engine lower, runs the engine's cooler, more respected temp- um, thrust settings. We make use of the full length of the runway then to get the aircraft airborne, but we've looked after the engines. Okay. So it may feel strange that you're on a plane with very few people on board and yeah. it seems to take the whole length of the runway. And it doesn't sound the same because it doesn't rev as high and you accelerate slowly. That's what that is. Somebody sent me a video the other day of a, 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 an airliner taking off. Um, that wouldn't happen to be me, was it? Yes, it was. Yes. And I said to Karen, she went, God, he's taking a long time, isn't he? Yeah, and it was exactly that. It yeah. was um, That was a very initial ski flight. So we went out to Grenoble near the Alps and we took a full aircraft out Yeah, and we brought not a lot of people home. Okay. So because of that, I was able to use the full length of the runway to get the aircraft into the air by minimising how much thrust I was producing. Yeah. Um, also has the advantage that we can do this in another way of keeping the aircraft on the runway for longer, which isn't related to derating, but it's a safety factor where we can accelerate the aircraft f- longer on the runway and it means that we climb quicker initially. So we take the aircraft into the air with more power, sorry, more energy, if you like. Um, It means we get away from the ground quicker. And if, God forbid, engine was to fail at the critical point, we'd have an awful lot more inertia. Um, But it's also beneficial for those that live near airports because although we're on the runway for longer, we climb a lot quicker initially. So we take the noise away from the airport and away from the ground. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, thanks, Peter. Over the summer, our holiday flight from Manchester to Tenerife seemed to go a weird route out over Ireland first. I'm not normally a nervous passenger, but this made me worried something was going on that the pilots didn't want to tell us about, because you're all secretive lot, you lot. We are, absolutely, yes. Keep it all to yourself. Yes. No, this was completely normal. Um, It would be a routing that would make more sense if you were slightly further north of the country. So certainly Glasgow, Edinburgh flights would do what this flight did. However, from even southern bases like Birmingham and Stansted, we would also take a similar routing. And the reason is it's because we're using what's referred to as an oceanic routing. Okay. So to explain why, I need to sort of explain a little bit of the costs involved in when we fly an airliner from one location to another, what we pay. Obviously, the biggest cost that everyone will spot straight away is the fuel. The longer the aircraft is in the air, the more fuel we burn. That makes cost more money. But there are also airways fees. So, are there? 
whenever we are flying through controlled airspace, whoever is controlling us is charging us. And this charge is based on the weight of the aircraft. And so the longer you are in controlled airspace, the higher the charge. But for most places, that's just an accepted cost of what we have to incur to go from one place to another. Now, there are locations in the world that don't have air traffic control the same as what most people expect, where we're talking to someone and we're on a radar screen. These places are predominantly over large water areas. The biggest one near us, obviously, is the North Atlantic. So when aircraft cross the North Atlantic from Europe to the United States, they are on oceanic routings. However, there are oceanic routings that run just off the coast of France, Spain, Portugal, about 400 miles off the coast, which is outside radar coverage. And that leads south from the UK. But to get to them, you have to route south of Ireland. So what's happened here is the aircraft has been filed on an oceanic routing. Taken off from Manchester, flown west, doesn't seem to make any sense to start with, considering the Canaries are south. But it will work its way over to the start of an oceanic routing. These routings are referred to as tango routes in business speak, but oceanic sums them up. And the reason why they've done that could be for multiple reasons. It's avoiding airways fees, but you will spend longer in the air because it's not a direct routing. So it's a trade-off between how much money are we saving on an airways fee compared to how much money are we spending in fuel and engine maintenance time by the fact the engines are running and the aircraft is airborne. The other big advantage of these routes is they can get you round restrictions. We spoke about air traffic slots on a previous video. Yeah, I remember that. Oceanic routings can get us round slots because it may be that the slot is limiting the amount of aircraft through a governed part of controller space but an oceanic route has capacity that we can then go into. It may not be as efficient and we'll spend more money, but the plane isn't delayed. Okay. Um, The other thing it gets around is uh, air traffic strikes. Not wanting to point fingers, but not a summer goes by without the French deciding they want to go on strike. Yeah. And oceanic routings will get us past French airspace. Okay. So that's why we would get down to the Canaries that way as well. So a little unusual to do it from Manchester but certainly not unheard of in the height of the summer, which I assume when this flight happened. And even from really southern locations, we can still get out to those oceanic routings. They predominantly require going off the end of Land's End. So fly to the south coast, turn right, fly off the end of Land's End. About 400 miles off the coast, you'll then start the oceanic part of the flight. How interesting. Excellent. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much. No problem. Thank you for watching Real Pilot Answer Series here on the Phobic Flyer Channel. We have more videos coming, so please like, subscribe and look at the back catalogue to see if your questions have been answered. Coming up in the next video, how do pilots land when it's foggy?